This is Jesus speaking. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like this. Ten bridesmaids took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a shout, Look, here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those bridesmaids got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, No, there will not be enough for you and for us. You had better go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they went to buy it, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him into the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later the other bridesmaids came, also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replied, Truly I tell you, I do not know you. Keep awake, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Bridesmaids, virgins, maidens, all of those words are used for these young women. And if we read this text as we've often been given to read it, the traditional way, which is Jesus or God is the bridegroom, then we come to all sorts of grief. First of all, Jesus, if he's the bridegroom, slams the door in the face of people in need. If you read the little article in the Clayton, I pointed out that Jesus had just condemned the religious leaders for doing exactly that. So what are we to do with this? And the wise don't share. What kind of wisdom is that? I think we have to rethink how we look at this story. And there's some clues in it. The first is it's about five foolish and five wise. Now any of us who grew up on fairy stories know that we are in for a lesson when there's the foolish and the wise together. It's a story about us. Because I don't know about you, but I am wise. And monumentally foolish. Sometimes in the same breath. Usually, at least a dozen times in the same day. And I'm very keen on recognising my foolishness. Not so keen on recognising my wisdom. But of course, if we don't recognise both, then we're even more foolish. It's about us. It's a story about us, how we are all the time. We are, to use one of the ways of understanding myth, the the myth of the dragon, 
the dragon is the human being. The dragon is both half angel with wings and half serpent, which in the old story, of course, is the evil. And in lots of stories, the dragon appears this way. We are both foolish and wise. So what separates wisdom from foolishness in this story? Well, it could be being prepared. Those of you who enjoyed or endured scouting or guiding as a younger person will know that be prepared was the motto that Baden-Powell, the person who started this boy scouting movement, named after himself. He was a bit of an egotist. BP, be prepared, Baden-Powell. This is what he wrote. In, the boys, in, in Scouting for Boys in 1908. Every boy ought to learn how to shoot and to obey orders. Else he is no more good when war breaks out than an old woman. <laughs> oh, where do you begin, anyway? And merely gets killed like a squealing rabbit, being unable to defend himself. That was 1908. Some of those boys... Some of those boys, eh? They did obey orders. They did learn how to shoot. They prepared them for the slaughter. A 19th century war fought with 20th century weapons. A 19th century mentality of the generals. And as one of the poems goes, they slew the seed of Europe one by one. Half the seed of Europe one by one, I think. What if being prepared isn't really the thing that it's made out to be? What, what if that's not really what separates the wisdom from the foolishness in this story? I'm going to try this idea, and you can take it or leave it. What if what separates wisdom from foolishness is leaving or not leaving what's going on? Look, here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Here is the moment. Here is the opportunity to fully embrace life. One of the images of the bride and the bridegroom and the wedding feast is the idea of the coming together of all things that Jesus is talking about all the way through. And he often uses this metaphor. In fact, the very first story in the Gospel of John happens at a wedding. So it's a very central way of thinking for Jesus. So here is the moment. Don't leave. Here is the moment things might or could come together for us, for you, for us together. Don't wander off. Don't go off as these in the story do. They often have to buy something. Consumerism, of course, has become an important drug in our culture. If in doubt, buy something and you will feel better. And you will. It's like, you know, all those... Rubbishy statements that the Reagans used to make about say no to drugs because they, they don't work and they're bad. Well, they do work. They're good. They do the right thing. It's just that what they do is take you out of reality. And we all know that when we have to take drugs for pain. They kind of d divorce you a little bit from what's really going on, which is good because you don't want to be in pain. But if you do that for too long, you begin to wonder what's real and what isn't. How do you belong in the world? Don't wander off. Stay present. Don't. Do you remember? Did you ever read Brave New World? Everyone got very excited about 
1984, which is one of the great books of the 20th century by George Orwell. But Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, which was written a few years before 1984, had a different view of the world. It wasn't that Big Brother would come in and control, but that we would control ourselves by blissing out on what they called Soma in the book. We would bliss out on being passive, watching television, fiddling with social media, and just letting things wash over us because we feel quite good, everything's fine. I think it's a far more devastating critique on the culture we live in than 1984 so far in our culture has turned out to be. Be present in the moment. It's full of possibility. But what does it actually mean? Does it mean to sort of be a kind of mystical person? Maybe. Does it mean to be deeply meditative? Possibly. But one of the most practical things that it means is to, re to know this moment to be the reality of our experience. This, isn't, this moment is not the moment we might have chosen. It's not the moment we think it should be. It's the moment that is. It's this moment. And staying awake, which is what Jesus exhorts us to do, staying present, awake and alive, is very central to what it means to be fully human. Because we know when we meet people who have found themselves addicted to some form of narcotic, or we ourselves find ourselves ill and having to take those kinds of mind-bending drugs in order to be healed, we, we sense that we're not really with the person who we know. We, we sense that they're separated out a little bit. And that's you know, fine for that moment, um, and, and when you no longer need them, you can sort of come back to reality. The present moment, living in this moment. It's possible to, to be here and now. I think that's what one of the things Jesus is saying. And what that looks like, of course, is about actually being present to each other. Emmanuel Levinas, the famous philosopher who lived through the whole of the horrors of the 20th century, said it's all about seeing the face of the other. It's about seeing the other as really human, as not only human, but as me. And it's got echoes of Jesus, hasn't it? I mean, Levinas, as you can tell from his name perhaps, was a Jew and so had um, not only experienced the horrors of the 20th century as an academic, but experienced them as an individual. What is it that connects us together? If we see each other in the face, what might that change? What would have happened if the connected families of Europe, and there were only a handful at the end of the 19th century, um, Barbara Tuchman, the, the, the famous historian in her work on the First World War, said there were about 200 families in England who were all intermarried and interrelated, and they ran the world. And they saw themselves not as responsible to the people, those who were in government, Lord Salisbury and people like that, they saw themselves as responsible for. They were the carers of the poor people like us who don't really know what's going on and don't really understand. We're the children and they're the parents who are going to look after us. What would have happened if those interconnected families, and remember the leaders, the, the, the monarchs of each of the main countries in the war, many of them were at a wedding weeks before the death of the Archduke, Ferdinand. 
They knew each other. They were related to each other. What if they had seen the face of you and me, ordinary people, looked at it really? Would that have changed what happened? Wouldn't that have changed the entire history of the 20th century and therefore our entire lives? What if Donald Trump had really looked at people that he spoke so poorly about? Muslims, Mexicans, and go on and on and on. It's just a tawdry little list. What if he had done that? What if our governments had looked seriously into the face of young men and women who came here by boat and have been incarcerated? What if you and I were to look at each other seriously in the face? We'd change everything. Because if we don't, we end up at the end of the story where you turn up I don't know who you are. Truly, I tell you, I do not know you. Honestly, I have no idea who you are. And that's where we are in so much of our lives. We have no idea who each other is. A woman walks in with a hijab on and we're not sure. Somebody with a black face or a strange accent. We have to work at this all the time saying, yes, this is me. This is a, a me type of person. This is someone who has the same sort of pain as I've got, the same sort of problems I've got, the same sort of hopes I've got. We don't want to live in a world where we look at each other and say, honestly, I have no idea who you are. This is not the world Jesus is calling us to. <clears throat> That's why I think he's switching the story around and saying that, the truth of the story is in not leaving, is in staying present in this moment. I read this yesterday, or perhaps the day before. Michelle Grattan, who's one of our great enduring voices in Australian journalism, wrote this in an article uh, that was republished in the ABC. To keep our democracy in good shape, we must nurture and increase trust ensure the economy works for the population generally and maintain a strong social safety net. There's a significant relationship between economic security and a well-functioning political system. We also need to do what's possible to keep political debate civil. You know in what context she's writing this. Social media and polarisation in the mainstream media have already coarsened the conversation. That hasn't undermined our democracy yet, but there are risks. Okay, so Michelle's working at that level. I'm working at this level. Just ordinary person with ordinary people. How do I translate this? How do I see you, each of you, each of the people I meet each day, as me? Or, in the religious words, made in the image of God. I think that's the call.